Welcome to Maynooth University, and today's discussion is a manifesto for the humanities. I'm Maria Promajori, professor and head of media studies at Maynooth University, and I'm here today with Porrick Kerrigan, a PhD student at Maynooth, and Professor Sidney Smith, a pioneering scholar in the field of autobiographical writing. Professor Smith is the Mary Fair Crushore Professor of Humanities and the Director of the Institute for the Humanities at the University of Michigan. She's published 15 books on subjects ranging from African-American autobiography to 20th century women's autobiographical writing, indigenous Australian voices, and women's travel narratives. Her most recent book, which is also the subject of her lecture at Maynooth University on October 13, 2016, is entitled A Manifesto for the Humanities, Transforming Doctoral Education in Good Enough Times. That was published in 2015 by the University of Michigan Press and is available through open access. Thank you for joining us, Porik and Professor Smith. Um, Sid, I would like to ask you um, if you could talk a little bit about your scholarly research on autobiography and life writing um, and give us a sense of the state of the field when you were a graduate student and the impact of your work in this area. I was in graduate school from 1968 to 1971, so it was a, quite a churning time on campuses in the U.S. And um, when it came time to think about what I was going to do my dissertation on, I wanted to work with this particular professor, and he had been working with a student who had just finished, and she had written her dissertation on the African-American novel. And he said to me, as um, he and his student had been thinking about the opening up of African-American literature and incorporating it into the academy and into the teaching program of the academy, that um, there hadn't been anything, or there hadn't been much done on African-American autobiography. So I should think about writing on that. And as it turned out, um, the next term, I guess it was, it was in 70, um, in the spring of 70, I decided uh, to teach a course on African-American literature because I'd never had any of that when I was an undergraduate. And so if I was going to be start thinking about it um, for a dissertation, I uh, decided I better know something about it. And I taught this course, and that was... Um, uh, and that was a ph phenomenal experience um, because it was uh, it required me to get my head around the kinds of the the genres of African American literature that had emerged at various historical moments, beginning with the slave narrative uh, in the early 19th century, all the way up to the kinds of writing that was being done by El Malcolm X and Eldridge Cleaver in the 1960s. So um, as I worked on that, I began to... Uh, it's like it was not a traditional kind of dissertation to do. So it was the first... Kind of, it launched my career of always working in areas that were um, not yet central to the uh, kind of to what was understood as the corpus of literature 
American and English literature. And that's always been the case. I mean, that has never, all the books that I've done, all the projects I've done have been trying to get at material and cultural formations that are outside the center of what people think is the literary, what they think is about the canon. Um, so it's been 40 some years of um, kind of pushing back at the ways in which um, uh, how we talk about the literary, how we talk about culture has been constrained. Um, so after I, I wrote the book on African-American literature, then in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s, I was retraining myself as a feminist scholar. And um, I decided I would look at women's life writing. And then in the 90s, I was fortunate to meet somebody with whom I've written, um, co-authored and co-edited books for 25 years. Uh, and she and I, uh, Julia Watson, she and I have continually tried to figure out where a new area is in life writing, um, kind of that we can open up for other scholars. So we did a book called Getting a Life, The Everyday Uses of Autobiography, and we did one on visual and verbal and performance autobiography. And then I also worked in the 2000s with a friend that I I. I met this uh, colleague uh, when I was on a Fulbright to Australia, Kay Schaefer, and she and I decided we wanted to look at the ways in which um, autobiographical narratives and personal acts of witnessing uh, circulate through human rights campaigns. So we did the book um, on um, human rights and narrated, li narrated li human rights and narrated lives um, and ethics of recognition. Um, and then, of course, in the last five years, I've been thinking and writing on the state of doctoral education in the humanities. No, thank you. It's it's um, very easy to hear from your discussion, but also to know about your um, your work in the field. You've had an, a profound impact on literary studies, and certainly one of the the pioneering scholars in in autobiography and life writing. I'm I'm interested in how your scholarly research ask questions about who gets to tell their own story and whether or not the forms that exist are adequate to um, uh, those stories. So questions of genre come up, as you've as you pointed out. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you're beginning to go there, there um, anyway, how your research informs the way you think about the academy more broadly, including um, issues of ethics, politics, and diversity? Well, anybody who's worked in um, life writing studies, those of us who have been there for the long run, have always been um, uh, focused on gaining legitimacy for the field, so enabling the field to open up to see the importance of studying and thinking about the forms of life writing, genres, the many genres of life writing. So uh, it, just by virtue of being in the field, you're taking up a marginalized position. And um, that notion of who's marginalized in the academy has always been a part of what I've been um, thinking about. And um, the project of inclusiveness 
is also a project that's been ongoing uh, for the last 40 years in the academy. Um, the voices of um, scholars who are coming from different communities, scholars of color, the opening up of the curriculum for various area studies programs, whether it's women's studies or sexuality studies or African-American studies or ethnic studies, uh, disability studies now, queer studies. Um, I've always kind of positioned myself as a scholar who's pushing at the boundaries, who's pushing at conventions, who's pushing at the control and the, the kind of prestige economy of what's seen as at the center of the university. And um, I think there's some uh, obvious connections with the, the work I do on forms of life writing because life writing forms um, for certain communities, those become very potent, powerful, uh, and powerful social, uh, uh, they're put to important social uses. They have a politics, they are directed at politics, they are directed at claiming the human. Thank you. I actually want to turn to you, Pork, and, and ask you to maybe speak a little bit about your dissertation project in light of what Sid's just said sure about um, marginalization and the importance that um, stories and histories are to particular communities. Absolutely. So my own particular research is looking at queer visibility in Irish media from 1974 to 2014. So within that, then, I'm trying to historically situate and track how representations of Ireland's LGBT community has been conveyed traditionally in the broadcast media, but I'm also sensitive to the print media at the time. So how these discourses of representation have changed during this period. And it's really interesting to see. So I felt that it was very important that as part of this research that I gathered some quality of interviews from some of these LGBT activists who were in the media spotlight at the time and to see some of the politics behind it. And I do think that gathering these personal testimonies is really integral to just giving a close reading analysis to these texts. It provides some sort of light on the political culture at the time. I mean, for one example, the very first case of gay visibility with Senator David Norris in Ireland, he appeared on an RTE show in 1975 and the producers wanted him to sit in the darkness, have his identity completely wiped, he'd have his back to camera, there'd be shadows over him and his voice would be muffled by some audio recording sounds. And he said that completely defeated the purpose of what he was trying to achieve. He wanted Irish people in their living rooms to see the first live gay man, respectable, normal and just like anyone else. So, I mean, it's so important to kind of track these personal testimonies in a way that shows how I mean, a close reading wouldn't have provided me that insight. So hence why I think along with the traditional humanities of reading these texts needs to be taken into consideration when possible with these kinds of stories that are really insightful to the community and its formation. Yeah, very good. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, I want to turn now to um, some of the more recent work that you've been doing, perhaps as, as director of the Humanities Institute at, at Michigan, um, Sid. And and ask about your intervention um, in postgraduate education policy um, in in the U.S. and now, of course, internationally. You're here visiting with us, sharing sharing your wisdom um, that perhaps began with um, newsletter entries, as I as I understand. Um, yes, uh, 
I was fortunate enough in um, 2008, it was, to be elected second vice president of the Modern Language Association, and then you become first vice president and vice president. So I served as vice president in 2010. And as vice president, you are responsible for writing four newsletter columns where you're speaking to your um, community. And that, in the Modern Language Association of North America, that's about 30,000 professors of literatures and languages. So uh, that's a formidable challenge to figure out what you want to write on. And I found myself landing on uh, this, um, the question about doctoral education, but most particularly what I saw as a part of doctoral education that was never questioned. It was always taken for granted that the doctoral dissertation, that kind of capstone uh, activity and project that doctoral students engaged in, um, in so many humanities disciplines was understood as a proto-monograph, which is like a, a book. Uh, it's not quite a book because it, it, it's understood that it'll be changed after somebody leaves, but um, it's understood as a book, 300 pages, 250 to 400 page project. Um, and anything that kind of goes without saying draws my attention. So that, it goes mm -hmm. without saying that that's what we do in the humanities. So I wanted to chip away at that and kind of call that goes without saying into question. And so I wrote these two columns that were um, arguments for making the dissertation a, a, a more capacious project that is less stifled by a one-size-fits-all notion of the proto-monograph. So I called for opening up the options for how doctoral students might think about what shape a dissertation would take. Um, and that's what I've been talking about for six years now. Uh, and in the process of, of honing the arguments in conversations after 2010, uh, I began to shape a book that ended up to be called The Manifesto for the Humanities, Changing, Transforming Doctoral Education in Good Enough Times. Very good. Um, I want to actually go back to Pork now and, and ask you what your thoughts have been in um, thinking about Sid's proposals for the dissertation specifically and whether or not you see that as relevant to, to your work. And we could even perhaps talk about some of the ideas that we've had that's de that have developed from from your project. Absolutely. So as I established or said already that my project is very media heavy and I'm dealing with media texts. But in terms of that, I kind of learned very quickly when starting up my doctoral dissertation, I had good enough supervisors to let me know that the field is changing and that although the expectation is there that by the end of the four years that I'd have to submit a PhD, that the job market is essentially very, very competitive and that the skills have to be diversified and I have to kind of, you know, do other kind of projects that will help build up the transferable skills to make me attractive to other industries. So these other projects don't necessarily fit into the wider recognition that the 
doctoral award will give that requires the PhD submission at the end but it is very beneficial to make more attractive to other employers so for example myself and Maria have taken up a project collating oral histories and doing some media productions from that around Ireland's oldest social hub for the gay community in the 80s the Hirschfeld Centre and that was essentially a site where Irish gay people would go to socialise with one another and dance with each other at the weekends and watch movies together and we feel that it's a very important Mm -hmm. social institution to track so that's part of a wider project in which we're publicly engaging with people we're doing public events and media productions as I said a radio documentary is proposed and these are really important again for diversifying the skills of doctoral education at the moment and it's kind of quite frustrating at times because at the end of this the only thing that is going to be recognized is the 100,000 words that I do produce but if I want to get even considered for a tenure track job I inadvertently have to be working on publications and putting them into particularly high impact journals and being very conscious of that as well so essentially you still have to play the academic game while spinning the plates of making yourself attractive to perhaps NGOs or media production companies or what have you so there's a lot of plates spinning and it can be quite frustrating at points. I hear you there, Porik. I hear you. What you're what you're struggling with there. I I also see um, the uh, the generative possibilities. What's been very interesting to me about the the Hirsch, that we're calling it the virtual Hirschfeld project mm-hmm. because this was an LGBT center that existed for about ten years, um, and then there was a fire and um, the the center sort of dissipated and the work it did sort of went out to different organizations and locations. But it seems to me a sort of slice of history that is um, in danger of being lost as the cohort that actually used and experienced that center ages out. Um, and so it's a sort of history project, but it also has, obviously, for those of us interested in media studies, you know, visual mm-hmm. and sound mm-hmm. representations that we sort of want to want to capture. So there's a, an excitement for me in the sense that this would have a kind of public engagement aspect to it that traditional academic publications, whether in journals or whether the dissertation project itself um, wouldn't have. So, but, but I understand your, your, your frustrations that in this transition period that we're talking about, there are all of these new opportunities for scholarly publication and digital platforms, and yet many institutions, and our own included, still remain wedded to that traditional dissertation you're, I, you're asking us to rethink. Said. Can, I, can I add something here? Um, I mean, the project, that project is a very important project. So from my point of view, um, there would be no reason that a meta project or a meta piece on the project wouldn't be a part of the dissertation you've described, right? Absolutely. Because um, you're, you're looking at representations of LGBT people, but... A, a coda where you come at it from the other way and think critically about the story forms that people have to tell their own stories and what it means to be a researcher and curate their stories and how that becomes another scaffolding of representation. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's uh, um, organic to the project itself. And um, the other thing is that, this is reflecting on the, the U.S. situation now, 
Um, there's more and more talk on campuses about the engaged humanities, humanities in the world, um, uh, scholarship done with communities, in the communities, and knowledge produced collaboratively between researchers and scholars and people in communities. Um, so there's a trend in that direction. So the skills that you're gaining are not just skills for career paths outside of the academy, but they're also um, skills and expertise that is needed inside the academy. We're just in this tremendously fluid area right now. Well, and it all often seems to be the case that um, those who <clears throat> embrace the right. coming form, um, the new, um, will always be sort of having a foot in both in both right. worlds and right. doing perhaps more um, um, and different than than those who stay with with the, the tradition. Um, I'd like to turn um, to some of the um, questions about humanities higher education, some of the challenges and opportunities that you that you identify in your in your book, Sid. Um, you call this um, in the title of the manifesto, Good Enough Times, um, and you really want to reject a nostalgic view of, you know, university education and that uni the university world used to be so great and now it's so terrible. So I just wonder if you can talk, you know, briefly about what are the, the difficult um, issues facing higher ed, and, and certainly use the U.S. as context. You don't need to feel you have to, to talk about Ireland. That's not your métier. But, um, you know, what are also the opportunities? When I was um, writing the first part of the manifesto book, I began cataloging all the crises that people have. Are talk about when they talk about the academic humanities. This is primary. I mean, I'm speaking about the U.S. situation. So, one of the one of the crises is the withdrawal of public funding to the great universities and the university systems in almost all the states. The the um, decrease in the percentage of the cost of higher education that's borne by the state. And the devaluation of the liberal arts in um, uh, and the favoring of instrumentalist education, education in business and engineering, economics, um, and the ways in which um, the, uh, the there's been an increase in the percentage of non-tenure track faculty teaching for uh, on sometimes without contracts for paltry sums of money um, uh, for each course that they teach. So those are all the big issues facing the academic humanities. And um, uh, they're real, and uh, we are called on to address them. What I decided to do in the book is um, not to linger in that those um, crises, because many people have written books about those crises. And if you linger too long in them, you can think that there's nothing to be done um, and move 
into a nostalgic mode of thinking that we're never going to be like it used to be. But as you can tell from what I was talking about earlier, I've never been nostalgic about the Academy because the Academy has always had problems and been in some kind of crisis. And it's always had its exclusions that many of us have worked really hard to try and overcome. So for me, nostalgia is bootless. Um, um, it's not a, it, it, it's not a position from which to make change. And so that's why I tried to think about why the times are good enough, uh, at least in the United States. And, and I came up with the fact that activism around these issues about the academic humanities is taking place all across the country. Activism in terms of the rise of the percentage of contingent faculty members in the academy. There's all kinds of organizations that are working on that. Um, and so there's, there's also the people that are making the argument that the humanities are not a drain on university budgets, but in fact, they generate revenue. So there's all that data out there. There's all those narratives to tell that turn the story of the academic humanities around. The other thing that was really important to, to me is to um, think about the academic humanities as on a continuum with all those people in other professions that are humanists. Either they've been trained as humanists as undergraduates, or they have PhDs and are working in other places, or they're everyday humanists, the people that are interested in history, the people that are play music, the people that um, go to museums, the people that go on archeological digs. We are, there's uh, millions of humanists out there. And if the academic humanists don't kind of, it behooves us to understand that we are part of a larger community the teachers that teach in the humanities in the secondary schools and the grade schools, the musicians, the museum directors, the museum curators, the people working in nonprofits and arts organizations. So for me, that opened up this notion of a larger humanities workforce, opened up this idea that, that we've got a lot of allies out there and that we've got connections to be made as you're making in your work of going to communities and becoming engaged in the public work of the humanities. Thank you. Actually, Pork, I want to ask you what you think about that, that model in relation to Ireland, because I'd have some thoughts about that just being a very yeah. recent transplant myself, but I'd like to hear your thoughts about that engagement with humanists everywhere and how you might experience that as a Absolutely. as a humanist in the academy, but working also in the community. Yeah, I think we're at a very exciting time, particularly in Ireland. Um, amongst my cohort of doctoral researchers, the demands of funding bodies in particular are even themselves beginning to reimagine the humanities in different ways. And because funding is so low and competitive, we are now, as applicants to these funding programs, <coughs> also rethinking how we're going to approach the humanities. So the main research body in Ireland that funds us would be the Irish Research Council. And as part of that, they're asking us specifically in the application, how are you going to communicate your research mm -hmm. with these communities? What is it you're going to do? 
they do not want the ivory tower notion of the nostalgic things we talk about with regards to academia. They want us to be engaging with Ireland and the communities around the country. So that's been really important. And I think that the cohorts that are now coming through are actually even themselves have a changed view of the humanities. And as they slowly start to come up in the ranks, I'm very hopeful that this will even begin to change. So even in terms of my own research, I mean, I give public talks on the representations of gay people in Ireland and regular Joe Soaps come in and have a really, really valued experience and really good responses from that. And I know that's reflective of a lot of doctoral students at the moment. So I do think there is a change happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am hopeful that this, I just hope that this will begin to trickle up to the forces that be in the higher powers that one might argue are coming from the nostalgic old sense of what the humanities was, the traditional within the walls of the university and not engaging with the community. I do think this next generation is going to change that, I hope, not to be too, um, not to sound too um, Disney here, but I... <laughs> You wouldn't want to be too optimistic (laughs) there, would you, Clark? Well, it's been a really exciting time for me, as I say, as a recent transplant, spending most of my academic life in the United States and being in Ireland now for three years. What I perceive is so many opportunities of the type that you're describing, Sid, and you're you're mentioning pork as sort of being coming part of the the toolkit of, of graduate students now. And part of it for me seems to even relate to... um, Irish culture and its approach to the humanities, I think there is a deep, deep vein of um, pride and connection with literature, with history, with music, um, in a way that I I wouldn't have said I experienced growing up as an American and being um, a humanist in the United States. I, I, I certainly wouldn't say it's not valued. It's just valued in a different way and held in a kind of cultural esteem. That, that doesn't mean there haven't been challenges, funding challenges, and, and so on. But Certainly um, living here in 2016 and looking at all of the um, commemorations of the Easter Rising um, of 1916 and and all of the activity going on around that, um, there's a tremendous energy in Irish culture that I think is um, profoundly um, supportive of humanities, and I think that's that that there may be within that um, the older model of ivory tower. Um, uh, academia, but I think there's a, um, a real opportunity there, and I think we can um, we have some some good things to look forward to there. Um, I'm going to ask you, Sid, um, about the um, the changes um, that you're advocating in your manifesto, and um, how you see you you, you mentioned um, a few minutes ago, uh, you know, since 2010. There have been you've, you've been speaking about this. How have the proposals um, been received, and and what's your sense of, of perhaps optimism? We don't have to end on a Disney note, but at least ask about what your prognostications are. So um, there, the major thrust of my recommendations has been around um, opening up the options for a dissertation, what a dissertation might be, what it might look like um, in response to or with recognition of of the changes that have been taking place in the everyday life of academic humanists. And um, uh, certainly when I speak about that, alternatives to the monograph dissertation, Uh, whether it be an ensemble of essays on different topics or 
a um, an ensemble of different kinds of writing for different audiences, or a project that looks at that's um, a work of scholarly um, activity, but also thinking about how to teach in the in this field and the philosophy of pedagogy and its relationship to scholarship or translation or documentary film or a born digital project all of these options to the conventional monograph are out there to be pursued and i find that um by and large uh graduate students are are taken with this um, because uh, it gives them an opportunity to think more creatively about what it is they want to do. Faculty are energized, some faculty are energized by it, um, some faculty are suspicious of it because it's seen as an erosion of the core of what the humanities is and what the humanities does. It produces books, and so graduate students should produce a book-like thing. Um, but I think that over five years, I, in my exchanges with doctoral students um, and talking with them on campuses, I think there's going to be a more open environment in which students can talk with their advisors about some of the possibilities or some of the different kinds of, doc of dissertation projects they can do. That's gonna be slow. The thing that is happening, the other thing I talk about in the book is um, something that we've talked about and you've talked about for, um, is preparing doctoral students to imagine themselves for multiple possible careers. And um, that is a kind of, that, that is a change that's taking place across North America. There's more and more programs that are um, recognizing that they need to bring back um, graduates who are in uh, careers outside the academy to talk about them. Uh, that in the process of searching for jobs, they've guide, got to guide students on how they might present themselves for different kinds of jobs. So, um, and there's been a lot of funding put in those projects by the Mellon um, Foundation. So I, th that is a change that's gaining. It's it's reached a discursive threshold. It's gaining momentum. That I think that's going to create a backflow of energy for thinking differently about the structuring of the curriculum and thinking differently about the options for a dissertation. So it's kind of working backwards from where students go after they graduate um, to let those initiatives seep into the more um, encrusted areas of doctoral education. That makes a great deal of sense to me. What it also seems to do in my mind is almost bring us back to where we started in sort of this work on life writing and, and who is the subject and who has authority and control to tell the story because one of the, the points that you make in the book and, and what's implied in what you've been saying is um, perhaps the dissertation advisor isn't the expert 
and the only source of um, support for a graduate student, that in fact what we have is more collaborative work in general, and that students may need to, and in fact should be seeking guidance um, sort of across the board. So some of the resistance I, 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 you've alluded to, I can imagine on the part of, of those of us in the academy who think of ourselves as I'm the supervisor is giving up that sense of authority and control and knowing everything that the student will need to master. And then in fact recognizing um, there are so many um, skills and um, experiences that they need to have that don't come from just that one teacher-student relationship. And I think one of the um, the models for this is a lot of the work being um, done in the public humanities and digital humanities, that you have teams, that you have um, advisors um, who become collaborators, um, and they are distributed, as you've talked about also in the book, not simply in your own university. They may be in other places and other continents. Yes, and I think that's the exciting aspect of this um, is that uh, this expanding of the um, community of mentors for graduate students outside the framework of the one-on-one -on -one of the student and the dissertation advisor, I think can be very productive for students um, because different mentors, different faculty mentors bring different skills and different forms of social interaction um, to students or engage them in different um, cultures of interaction. And that's a skill to be learned, that flexibility of collaboration and mutual interaction in the academy so that there's not just one model for how to be a faculty member. And we know that um, our own work comes out of the collaborative environment in which we share it with other people. Even singular scholars, uh, humanities scholars working in their offices, they go out, they give their papers, they get feedback from many people. They send it to friends. They're in reading groups or writing groups. It's a collaborative project. And our work as administrators is collaborative. We cannot make change without collaborating. And so the culture of collaboration as an alternative to this myth of the culture of the singularity of the humanist is um, something that is very desirable, I think, and will serve our students both in careers in the academy, but also in the careers they go into outside the academy. Well, thank you for that. I've very much enjoyed the collaborative project of this interview and our culture of interaction. Um, thank you, Porat Kerrigan, you much, PhD family. student at Maynooth University, and thank you very much, Sydney Smith, Mary Fair Crusher, Professor of Humanities and Director of the Institute for the Humanities at the University of Michigan. It was a pleasure. <laughs>